Hello, this is Jennifer Lescalette from MDisrupt, and we're so excited today to talk to Dr. Chet Robson, the Chief Clinical Officer and Medical Director at Walgreens. Chet and I are going to cover a lot of ground today from healthcare delivery to how health tech leaders can engage with health retailers to what's it going to take for pharmacogenomics to finally be adopted more routinely. Chet, it's an honor to have you here today and your breadth and expertise from the angle of a physician and also a commercial leader really provides a unique perspective from the patient and consumer experience angle. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm really excited to, to talk with you today. So Chet, most recently you have held C-suite and medical leadership roles at one of the world's largest pharmacy retailers. But prior to that, you spent several years as a practicing family medicine physician. So can you tell me how your experience as a physician led you to industry and retail? Yeah, sure. Um, So you're exactly right. I was in practice, uh, family practice uh, physician for several years. Um, I started before we had EMRs and then along came the EMR. And at first, you know, it was a real um, obstacle, a real barrier. So I decided that the EMR was going to be something that would be with me for the rest of my career. So what I needed to do was to learn to make it an asset rather than a barrier to patient care. So I went back to the company and started taking classes and learning and gradually understanding better how to use the EMR, what it could do, what the challenges were. Um, And then as I came back into my practice, I would share that with the other physicians and nurses and and so forth. So um, I, of course, gradually became, you know, the go-to person then for any kind of EMR uh, problems and ideas and so forth, which gradually led me to be the chief medical information officer on the ambulatory side for the for the health system that I was with. Um, and I did that um, through meaningful use um, on into patient-centered medical home types of experiences into uh, ACOs and value-based care. Because the EMR is kind of the center of, of most everything that goes on in the contemporary health system. But it was a great introduction into kind of the, the business of, of medicine. Um, and especially into the quality of medicine, which is what I really found the most interest in. And, of course, you get to a point in your career where it's like you have to um, decide, am I going to spend more of my time in patient care or more in administrative? And by that point, I decided to to kind of move the administrative line. So I did my uh, MBA at Dartmouth in healthcare delivery science, really looking at what are all the different ways that healthcare can be delivered to different populations, um, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and that's what kind of brought me to Walgreens was beginning to look at um, delivering healthcare beyond the health system to deliver it direct to consumers, direct to um, uh, where people actually live and and operate. And so um, that's that's really what took me to, to Walgreens was that opportunity to look at being able to deliver healthcare on a national scale in everyone's neighborhoods. Um, and and it's been a it's been a great uh, journey and transition. Excellent. I love to hear people's professional, as you call it, journeys, because I think it really is a journey. You have all these collective pieces of your of your your life and your professional life that add together to get to where you are today. And so it's it's always a lot of fun to hear um, how they all how it all fits together and how what you did 20 years ago can still be relevant, you know, today in terms of how you how you practice this at a global scale. So I think it's it's really fun. Um, so that kind of leads me into more of, um, I'd love to have a discussion around the healthcare delivery model. And uh, I'd love to hear your 
ideas around how you envision the healthcare delivery paradigm in the U.S. changing in the future, and what the what will the traditional health systems and also pharmacies do differently to adapt to this new model? Uh, everyone is in the transformation of healthcare, so um, this is a question gets looked at in many, many different ways, and and of course, there's many different opinions and factors that will lead into it. But I think there's definitely a few general things that we can take a look at. The first is, without question, healthcare is becoming much more home and consumer driven. You know, we've definitely seen this throughout um, the the pandemic as telemedicine has become a much bigger factor in delivering care. Um, but also even previous to that is that medications that used to be infusion medications, many of them are becoming oral. So like the oral oncology medications that used to, you, you have to go to an infusion center, do it. Now you can be taking those medications at home, you know, home testing in a whole number of ways. Partly we've seen this with COVID testing, but um, uh, a number of different tests from cholesterol to, um, uh, of course, everyone knows pregnancy tests, but there's so many conditions now. Genetic tests, of course, there's been a huge boom in, in that. So that there's a lot more testing that happens at home. Um, and of course, apps, you know, everyone has um, multiple apps on their phone related to some kind of either fitness, some kind of nutrition, sometimes to medications. Um, you know, our Walgreens app is downloaded, I don't know, 50 or 60 million times. I mean, every everyone interacts now with the different parts of their healthcare um, digitally through, through apps. So definitely much more of that is coming into the consumer um, focus. The second piece is, is that healthcare is becoming more specialized and more sort of biologically, scientifically complex, you know, with the, the advances in, in genetics, the advances in gene therapies and cell therapies and um, polygenic risk scores and a number of things that, that are um, really, really, you know, expansions of, of the, the whole medical um, understanding of things. But unfortunately, a lot of times what that means is that certain things become more expensive because those new technologies are, are usually not cheap. So what's going to happen, I think, and we already begin to see some of that happen, is that you have to figure out who best needs these specific types of things so that so that the people who gain the most benefit from it, that that's where the, the medication, the treatment, the uh, intervention is really directed um, and, not, and not so generally, um, you know, dispersed. The third thing is that definitely how we deliver healthcare is is changing a lot. Um, hospitals are having to become really parts of integrated health systems, and not only just within their health system, but integrating like that with with retail pharmacies and with um, Uber and with you know a number of other things that they would have never imagined doing before. But to meet the needs of their patients, they're having to become much more diverse. Um, than what they were on both inpatient, outpatient, but also making healthy connections. You know, many of the really successful health systems have their own apps to help, you know, connect with their patients. You know, from the pharmacy standpoint, um, uh, it's, it's a very similar theme. It's, you know, because we're kind of already in people's communities, but how do we meet those consumer needs exactly where they live and make it really easy for them to get medications and get the other kinds of, of healthcare services you know, that a pharmacy can provide? And secondly, um, 
how do we integrate better with the health systems so that as the health systems need, you know, um, delivery of their things into the community, we can help provide that. We've seen, you know, some good examples of that. Of course, the retail clinics um, in the pharmacies have been going on for several years. And like Walgreens, ours are all um, health system run. So the local health system is actually providing the care through the retail clinic. Many of the clinics, you know, Walmart, Walgreens, you know, are expanding into having primary care doctor's offices literally inside of their pharmacy and inside of their buildings. So we see a lot more integration of these non-traditional delivery models with traditional healthcare systems. And I think it's it's really beneficial for for consumers. And I all of that, I, I believe, is really going to expand um, and the final piece of that, I guess, is is the payment models to help facilitate that. So now it's not just simply saying, how do we pay for this knee surgery? But how do you pay for the prevention, the treatment, the aftercare, and, and bringing all these pieces together so that you get the very best outcomes, but in a perhaps a, a, a little bit different payment models than what we've seen. And what do you think, you touched on this a little bit, but how do you think this changes in this COVID timeframe, what are, what are some of the emerging trends that you've seen? So I, I think there's a number of things. Um, obviously, there's been a huge, you know, necessary rapid expansion of home center care. So you saw like telemedicine became, you know, has grown tremendously in the in the last few months. But home testing has also grown. I mean, a number of people now are managing some of their conditions that way. Um, there's some home testing for um, antibody testing, for antigen testing, COVID testing, you know. Um, so, you know, um, and of course, like I said, you know, genetic testing has been on the rise for a while. There's um, been expansion of coaching. So especially on the mental health front of being able to connect, you know, mental health needs, you know, uh, uh, virtually. Um, and there's um, also been some growth actually in home visits. Um, if you have, uh, you know, providers that, that, you know, you can kind of ensure that they're going to be safe because people can't go as easily to the hospitals and to the other sites. So there's been some evolution of the home uh, visits. There's obviously been a huge evolution of home delivery of products, of medication, of durable medical goods, of, you know, um, of all of the, I, I know at our house, you know, Amazon uh, is, is coming almost every day, you know, so, um, but that delivery of things into people's homes has really grown. I, I definitely think a lot of that will continue in a number of different ways. How do you evaluate new health technology for introduction into retail into the retail pharmacy market? Sure, this this is um, always a challenging and exciting thing because there's so many great ideas out there. I mean, they're all in different stages of development. Um, we have a, a very um, formalized approach that we go through. I won't go into all of it, but to give you kind of just sort of the general highlights of it. The, the first thing we look at when somebody brings something new to us is, is what problem is this trying to solve? Um, uh, because 
we've seen things where it's really great technology, but it, it doesn't really solve a problem. It's it's kind of an interesting scientific venture, but but it doesn't really solve a problem that most people have. Then then we kind of get into the the basics of things. You know, what's what's the basic medical science background that whatever this is based on? Um, is there just pretty standard? Um, delivery of care of of how things are treated and prevented, or is what you're proposing something that's still kind of out on the fringes of evidence? You know, it doesn't mean we wouldn't do it, but we'd really have to understand, you know, how what, what evidence you've put into this. Um, and then, of course, what we do then is we look at to see wh- whatever they're bringing, how does it fit into that science, right? Um, and then primarily. What is the clinical evidence of efficacy that that they bring? Um, have you done you know tests with several different populations? Have you um, looked at the outcomes of what you're doing? You know, unfortunately, a lot of times um, these companies will all they've done is they've really shown well. People say they would like to buy it, and they have a positive experience about it. Well. Th- that's good, um, but does it actually improve the thing that you're trying to improve? That's that's really the other piece of the equation. So it's trying to get that. Um, I remember when I first started at Walgreens, we had a, a, a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff that was brought to us, and it, it, they'd only been tested like by 14 people, like in the far hills of China. Well, that's not I, you know, it's not enough evidence for us to know if this is going to be a useful product. Um, and then, you know, basically, you know, what does it do? Um, is it simple to use? Are people going to be able to use it? Are people going to be able to afford it? Right. And then who's going to pay for it? Is it the patient that pays for it? it will this be paid through their insurance? You know, what, what, what is this kind of the basic business model of it? Um, uh, and then does it require any professional guidance? Does, does a physician need to order this? Does a pharmacist need to administer it? Does, you know, a nurse need to be present to monitor? You know, so is there any additional professional resources that we required? Um, uh, and then, you know, from a business standpoint, we always have to look at, you know, is there a sustainable business model for this? You know, is this something that people are going to buy one time and that's it? Is there something that goes beyond that? Um, so from a business standpoint, you definitely have to look at that. And then, of course, for any company, we have to look and say, is there a synergy with what this product is and with our businesses and our current strategy? Because many times, you know, we'll see products that are that are really very good, that are very interesting, but it might not really be the exact right fit for what we're, our current strategy is or what we're trying to achieve. Um, and, and so, you know, it's a, it's a whole whole number of things from – you know, is it, does it work right? You know, so th- that's kind of a, just a very general overview of how we would um, evaluate health tech or, or, or many types of products. Great. Cause I wanted to go into a little bit of, you know, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of pitches from health tech entrepreneurs and, um, and you've kind of touched on a lot of this, which is great. What, you know, just some of the important aspects of those pitches. And so it sounds like, when an entrepreneur or, or health tech leader is pitching a product, they, they need to center their pitch around, you know, what problem is this trying to solve? And then how is it going to improve outcomes? And you had me- mentioned also, you know, making sure that the the, bid- the business model is um, cohesive and, 
you've answered some of these things around, um, this, you know, synergies with the business and professional guidance. Is there, are, have, in your past experience, have you seen mistakes that have been made in terms of these pitches, <laughs> pitches gone wrong? <laughs> um, yes, I would say we've had <laughs> um, um, You know, the, the, the biggest thing I, I think is that when they, you know, a company comes to present, first of all, they need to kind of think, who is it they're presenting to? Um, because if like if they're presenting to me and my team, well, we're the clinical people. So what we want to hear is, is about your clinical things. We're really it, it's it's nice that you have you know good patient engagement and that's important. But we are going to really want to hear what's the clinical evidence that you have. So a lot of times what we see is what we need is less sales pitch. Right. We, we, we don't need the, you know, this is going to change the world and, you know, people like this. And we don't need that. We assume that it would be or you wouldn't be selling it. Um, what we need is the evidence. Can you demonstrate the outcomes of the people that have used your product? How did they do? Right. That that's what we want to see. Um, and, and admittedly, a lot of times with younger companies, it's difficult to get that. But even if you have a little bit, how do you know that your product works? What is it you want to hang your hat on? You can kind of prove to us that this is, this is a good thing. Um, so yeah, definitely, you know, evidence of outcomes, evidence of consumer interest, um, evidence of why this is better than something else. You know, you're, you've, you've put together, a product, an idea, a platform, an app, right? So why would we choose this one over something else? And what's the evidence that what you have works as well, works better? Um, so for us, it's more, we need more content than than uh, sales pitch. Are there products out there that you feel like are missing from the development pipeline that we haven't, that health tech leaders haven't explored enough or haven't kind of pushed the boundaries enough on? What, what are we missing out there? Yeah, you know, it, it's challenging because, you know, kind of no two are the same. You you tend to see companies that sort of deviate to, to kind of one side or other. In general, a lot of times they just don't have enough evidence. They might have a good product, but they've not, they put too much time and effort into developing the product or developing the sales promotion around the product instead of putting a little bit more time and energy into proving the product. They, they also need to make sure that they're on the path to regulatory approval. Um, so many times we're talking with people and they go, well, we're going to submit to the FDA or we know that other companies have done this. You know, and, until you get FDA approval, there's not a lot that we can do. I mean, we might like the concept, right? And thank you for introducing us that you're going to be doing this. But, but until you have a pretty good pathway that you can talk about how you're going to get regulatory approval, it, it's, not, it's not terribly helpful. Um, and then the other one that's interesting to me is that quite often people don't really understand quite the business model of what they're trying to develop. They've, they've developed the product to work. They've gotten some people to use it. But what, what's the business model of how you're going to do this? Who's going to pay for it? Are you trying to get payers to pay for it? Well, if you are, then where are you along that journey? And, and again, with all of these things, it's not so much that you have to have a finished product but or a finished concept, but what you need to do is to address these things and say, this is where we are, this is where we're going, this is the pathway we're taking. So we have a really good idea that you've thought about this and you know 
how you're going to um, move along each of those pathways so that you have a good product, you're regulatory approved, you have a good payers, you have a good business model. And that's, that's what we need to be able to see. I'd want to move on to the, to the third chapter of our discussion, which is pharmacogenomics. And I'd love to dig into preemptive pharmacogenomics. Um, adverse drug reactions are the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. And PGX, um, people have been working on it for a long, long time, but it's it's still not the standard of care. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how we reconcile that, if there is a reconciliation and kind of where it's going in the future. Yeah, you, you, I, I share that uh, frustration with you because I'm a very big believer in pharmacogenomics and, and think it could really, it will become a very valuable tool, but but we are still, you know, al- along that pathway. I, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, obviously, is that because it's, I'll say, newer science, it's probably not to you and I and a lot of the listeners, but to the general public and to the regulatory organizations and somewhat to even the legal organizations, it's still somewhat new. So they're still trying to kind of grapple with what to do with and how to do it. So there's, there's definitely some kind of regulatory and, and, and legal um, education that we really still have to do to, to, to move things along. Um, the, the other piece of it is we have to um, really become very specific about the benefits and use cases for each of these different kinds of things. Because there's, I don't know, three, 300 plus, you know, different um, uh, interactions that have been discovered and they have some, you know, varying degrees of uh, research about them. But, but most all of them have fairly good research about them. But there's really um, only specific ones that really have a really significant uh, clinical impact most of the time. And that's really important. And what we need to do is to make sure that that it becomes just standard of practice that those that really have an important interaction um, are really pushed forward and made um, to show the benefit. The, the The difficulty is I think we still kind of use too much of a, a shotgun approach where we show all the different variations, but we don't really show specifically how much of a difference is, is this going to make. Um, the third, last two, I would say, are just more just the operational challenges. One is that how do you get this information into a prescriber's workflow so that the, the healthcare provider at the point of writing that prescription, um, it's automatically into their workflow. So just like when they write a prescription now, they automatically look and see what the allergies are, right? We have to make it that simple for them to be aware of this is what the potential drug and gene interaction is, um, and then and then what you need to do about it. Until it's at that point of of, of prescribing, um, it's it's always going to lag. And then the last thing is, of course, the, on the other side of it is that that information that has to be available to anyone who's going to interact with it with the with the healthcare provider, with the pharmacist, with the patient, so that. They also have an understanding, you know, just like right now, if the prescriber prescribes a medication the patient has an allergy to, the pharmacist also sees that allergy, and the two of them kind of cross-check each other to make sure that that is um, that they're aware of that. Um, we need to get to a point where both the, the uh, healthcare provider and the pharmacist have that information. So again, so they can support each other to to help ensure that 
drug gene interactions are identified and and taken care of. So so part of it is regulatory. Part of it is is the actual um, uh, development of the science a bit farther, and part of it is operational. To the last point of operational and also linked to that, the availability of information, can you think of an example of a, of a country or a health system that's been successful in implementing a PGX program? Yes. In fact, um, we've done a, a very successful program uh, through Walgreens Boots Alliance uh, with our pharmacies, our independent pharmacies in the Netherlands. So um, we did a, a project with them. And what makes it good there is all of these things that we've talked about, they've kind of resolved each of those issues. So in the Netherlands, there's basically a single payer, which is the national health system there. And both the physicians and the pharmacies both have access to one common EMR. So what can happen is if either the physician or the patient um, or even the pharmacist sees that there's that this person's taking a medication that could have a potential interaction, right? Well, then they can just request from the physician that they get a, a, a PGX test done. The patient gets a PGX test done. The pharmacist then gets the results, walks through with the patient what the results are, and then also puts that information in the EMR so that the physician's aware of it. And if there's an actionable um, medication that, that would they would, you know, perhaps suggest some kind of evaluation or change we made. The pharmacist can then connect with the physician to say, is this a, a change of medication that you would like to make? Or are there other reasons we, would, we wouldn't do that? Um, and, and so it's worked extremely well. We've had really good uptake of this. Even throughout the pandemic, we've still seen the number of pharmacogenomic tests going up greatly. There's a great deal of interest in the, in the patients. Um, and the other piece of it that's been really interesting is that the physicians look at the pharmacists now as kind of um, part of the whole ecosystem then of them delivering care. So they really be, become to rely upon the pharmacists now to help to provide that. You know, it's still early. We've not even completed a year of it, but the initial results have been really, really strong. Um, so in the Netherlands, it's been a very good model. And when you think about the components of a, of a good PGX test, you've kind of been through these a, a little bit in terms of regulatory and other and specific use cases. But when you think about like panel contents, the report, um, clinical decision support, all of those things that that go into this, um, the patient risk stratification, um, education, what do you think the components are? Um, if, if we were to get there in the U.S., what, what would that PGX test look like? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big well, question. I, I, I think know. you've already mentioned all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 you know, I, there's no one single part to it. You know, part of it is um, definitely just the education of helping the physicians and the patients and sometimes the pharmacists to understand what is the PGX test? What does it tell you? What does it not tell you? How can you use it in the overall care of this um, person's medication management? Um, so uh, uh, definitely there's there's continues to be education that needs to go on. Um, uh, secondly, you know, like we talked about from an operational standpoint, you really need to try and make pretty much seam, seamless delivery of the information to all of those people so that they they get the information at a level that they understand it and they can act upon it. Um, 
So the the other thing too, from a um, maybe a, a bit broader perspective, because in the United States we tend to do a PGX testing sometimes for employee populations or for payer populations. We tend to want to do it on a on a population of people. Um, but to do that, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Is it's really important to stratify the population that you're going to be testing, so you have some idea of of what exactly is it you're trying to to you want this test to be able to do, um, and and where will it take you? And 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 I think you know right now, of course, you know all across the country, we're just trying to learn more and try more. So at this point, a lot of the those larger projects are much more general. They're they're broad based. We kind of throw out a big net of genetic tests and we sort of see what does it yield. And then we use that information to connect to some of the phenotypes, which is, you know, very essential for things going forward. But but as you begin to make PGX really an, an actionable value-based um, test, um, we're, we're going to need to become much more refined in our risk stratification of how we use the test. In terms of the specific use cases, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that um, it's important to understand what those u- use cases are. And if you had a crystal ball and you um, named uh, maybe the top three or top five use cases that you think already or will more than likely come on board in the health system, what would they be? Partly the FDA, of course, a year or so ago, um, really pulled back on the information that could be released to patients in various forms. Um, and they've begun to really make some real major strides moving forward on that and beginning to look much more deeply at the research and working with CPIC and some of the other organizations. So I think um, as the FDA is becoming more comfortable with what PGX brings, that that will be a major um a hurdle that we've overcome. Um, I think payers are doing a lot of different um, testing in various different forms um, with with sometimes with their PBMs, sometimes with their insured populations, sometimes with particular disease states to, to again talk about what we talked about earlier, which is understand um, a little bit of the stratification of where is this the most useful and which populations do we find that we can have the most impact of doing this? So payers are becoming, I think, extremely interested in in utilizing this. Um, so, I, so I think partly on the regulatory front and partly on the payer front, we're beginning to see a lot of movement that we hadn't seen so much in the past. So is that a is that I guess that's a positive in terms of PGX being broadly reimbursed? That you're seeing some movement on the big payers that you think maybe eventually. I, that will happen. I, I think it is. Um, the other thing too is I think that that um, uh, PGX a lot of times really is beginning now to be a part of a bigger um, genetic picture of of understanding um, you know a, a, a more f- a robust genetic picture of an individual because. Currently, we have a pretty robust understanding of their phenotype. We do lots of biometric testing. We do lots of lab testing, imaging. We have lots of phenotype information, right? We tend to not have very much, sometimes no genetic information. And to really be able to fully manage people, um, you really have to understand that entire equation. Of course, in, in the in, from non-biological stance, you also, of course, have social determinants of health. But just speaking of the kind of the, the biological information, um, 
you know, having both of the phenotypic information and then the genotype information. Um, so PGX it becomes a piece of that total genetic view. Um, and I think that that's a direction that a lot of places are moving is to make that a piece of, of, of a total comprehensive view of the patient. So I wanted to ask you, in conclusion, just one last question, and this is, again, another another crystal ball, but I would love to understand your view on the pharmacy of the future and what does that look like? And really, when you think about like health tech along with big big tech, which I think will be really interesting as we as we move forward here, you know what do you, what what do you think that looks like? And what do you think the role of far, that pharmacies will play in that future healthcare delivery model? I, I think we've kind of you know set the stage a little bit for it already, talking about you know the directions that that healthcare is moving, the direction that consumers are moving, and that science is moving. Um, I always like to to kind of mention that essentially there, there's only about three or four ways that you sort of treat or manage health and disease. Um, so the first is that you maintain health. You know, you keep everybody moving, eating well, exercising, you know, those kinds of things. The second thing is you have to prevent illness. You do immunizations. You do routine testing, you know, um, uh, so that you're constantly monitoring that even though someone's healthy, you try to help prevent them from becoming ill. The third way, of course, which is the, the big one the pharmacists play a role in, is medications. Is the primary way that most most diseases treated is with some sort of medication, right? And then the fourth way is interventions, things like surgery, radiation, those kinds of things. And the thing is with a pharmacist is that a pharmacist um, can do about three and a half of these. They definitely help to maintain health with the different products that they sell and the information they provide. Um, they can help to prevent disease with immunizations. Um, uh, they Obviously, they're the experts in, in medication delivery. And they can work with the patient going into the surgery and coming out of the surgery of helping them to be um, uh, prepared um, and then to help to that transition when they come out. So the pharmacist can play a huge role in the overall spectrum of of maintenance of health and disease. Um, so the biggest thing I think for pharmacists is that um, providing medication um, and and treatment expertise is is really important, and we need to get them um, beyond simply being pill counters. You know, th- they are doctors and. In, in medication management and pharmacation, pharmacy delivery. You know, any kind of disease, especially that's primarily treated by medication, you know, HIV, diabetes, hypertension. So many of these conditions, it's primarily a medication management type of issue. Helping people to be able to do that well, as well as economically well, is central. And pharmacists can do that. So part of the pharmacy future is helping pharmacists to be much more of um, delivering services um, uh, rather than just simply delivering pills. Um, the, the third thing is that, that that pharmacies, you know, are already in everybody's neighborhood. You know, there's, you know, a CVS, a Rite Aid, a Walgreens everywhere, right? That's a good thing because it creates a network of places that people can get health resources 
easily. You know, like you were saying, you know, some of your providers are 40 some miles away. Well, that's not always a convenient thing. If they're only a couple miles away, a few minutes away, that makes it a lot easier thing from a day-to-day basis to be able to, to fit it right into your life. So I think part of that is continuing to expand what are all of the different things that you could do in that little local neighborhood um, setting that you that and so you only have to go 40 miles away occasionally for some really specific things. The, the other thing I think is that, and this kind of happens throughout a number of areas, but um, pharmacies have both over-the-counter medications where people are making their own decisions. Well, working with a, a pharmacist to help understand those over-the-counter medications is really important, as well as the prescription medications. So now you have someone that can help you with the entire um, um, scope of what the medications are from, you know, deciding, you know, which um, allergy medicine to, you know, with helping you manage, you know, complex medical regimens of, of oral chemotherapies. I mean, they can literally cover that entire range um, and, and no one else can do that. And, and then the last thing is really more kind of the, the virtual world is the number of apps that tie together for your medications, for that information about your immunizations, all those kinds of things. Telepharmacy, you know, being able to to have televisits with the pharmacy or to ask them questions. Um, you know, both many of the pharmacies, especially the chain one, you know, we have a 24-7 pharmacy chat where people can chat with the pharmacist, you know, to ask them, I forgot to take my medicine this morning. Should I take it now? Should I take two? You know, all of those questions that come up usually at, you know, inconvenient times, having that virtual um, always ready connection is definitely going to be a, a pharmacy of the future area. And then I think the other piece that has more behind the scene is, is just all the data analytics that come, can come out of that, of being able to understand adherence patterns and, and delivery patterns and, you know, the interconnection of all of that kind of thing. And then being able to use that information to help people's lives be healthier and better. So the, the pharmacy of the future, I think, is really an expansion of what we do now is allowing the pharmacist to do to use their full skills rather than than just operation skills is allowing people um, to connect virtually in person to their you know their local pharmacy as well as being able to have access virtual access to a number of pharmacy resources you know wherever they are so that's that's what I kind of see as the pharmacy of the future I find it amazing listening to you go through each of the bullet points because not that long ago, many of these things were just what we could do in the future. And to see them being implemented and part of our everyday world today, I find it just incredible because it's really that big, the big data and science and technology coming all together and making this the, the physician, the pharmacist, and being more impactful for a better patient outcome. And I think it's, um, it's just really exciting to hear it. You know, I guess the last thing I would kind of sum everything up is that, is that what kind of took me into this area of having worked in a health system for many years and now working in the retail healthcare environment is that every person's life exists mostly at home, right? Occasionally we have other health issues and we're in a hospital, we're in a physician's office, we're in a surgical center, we're in other places. For the most part, we live our, our lives at home um, in varying degrees of health. Having a health system that 
health system meaning in the, in the broadest sense of the word, that connects all that together so that my experience is I can get certain things at my local pharmacy and my, with my local health care providers that are really convenient. I can get other things virtually if I'm traveling, if it's off hours or something. And I can still connect into a major health system if I have a major health care issue that, that really has to be in that kind of setting. And then being able to make all of that connect together because that's how I live, right? I don't live, you know, <laughs> in these different silos. Um, I live in a continuum of experiencing all of that. And I think the more the healthcare um, ecosystem moves to being interconnected um, so that we meet the way that people actually live and experience healthcare, that's really the, the future that I'm interested in. And I think, like you were saying, we have technologies and ways to deliver that that we've never had before. And, and as, as we move towards that continuum, it's going to be beneficial for everyone.